Hello and welcome to the Rogers Brief. I'm Adam Rogers. Thank you for watching and thank you for listening. I'm going to be continuing my reading of Deficits of Trust, which is my ebook into the events of the mass casualty in Nova Scotia of April 18th, 19th, 2020, and then the Commission of Inquiry, the Mass Casualty Commission, which was designed to look into those events. So uh, this is part two, which is the what really happened section. And I'm going to be looking at parts, or sorry, sections 15, 16, and 17, which is the final part of that section. The third and final section of the book is uh, talking about the commission itself, called Tragically uh, Misinformed. And so we'll get to that uh, in the next recording. So this is uh, starting with a section called The Big Stop. Commission lawyer Anna Mancini presented the Big Stop foundational document. This document outlines the final moments where the perpetrator was shot and killed by two RCMP officers. The key question I had going into this presentation was whether the MCC would support the conclusions reached in the Serious Incident Response Team CERT report. CERT reviewed the final moments of the Nova Scotia mass shooter Gabriel Wartman's killing spree when he was shot dead by two RCMP officers at the Irving Big Stop in Enfield at 11.25 a.m. on April 19, 2020. The CERT report appeared to either ignore an earlier stop at the Petro-Canada station in Elmsdale or else conflate the activities at the two gas stations. To almost nobody's surprise, CERT cleared Constable Craig Hubley and Constable Ben McLeod of any wrongdoing in the incident, which brought to an end a terrifying ordeal for the people of central Nova Scotia and beyond. Reviewing the CERT report and further evidence uncovered since that time does not detract from the skill and mettle of these two officers in those critical moments, but does raise questions about what was known to CERT when the report was written, and also about possible connections between Wartman and the police. The CERT report notes that when he arrived at the big stop, Wartman was driving a stolen vehicle and had a cache of weapons, including three handguns and two semi-automatic rifles. Wartman had switched vehicles, changing from the Ford Escape, improperly noted in the CERT report to be a Chevy Tracker. He had driven after killing Joey Weber, to the grey Mazda 3 he had stolen from Miss Goulet. The CERT report notes that Wartman stopped for gas at the big stop and that two emergency response team officers coincidentally stopped at the same time on the opposite side of the same pump. The report states that one officer saw that the man in the car was bleeding and recognized him as Wartman, exited his police vehicle to begin refueling, saw Wartman reach for a gun and opened fire. It all sounds like something out of a movie, but the vague language used by former Justice Cacchione may also have the effect of concealing some details we have come to know since. First of all, we have video from the Petro-Canada in Elmsdale that shows Wartman pulling up to a gas pump, then getting back in his car, Miss Goulet's grey Mazda 3, and driving to another pump before finally driving off without filling up all while being watched by ERT officers who were at the next pump. The pumps were turned off at the Petro-Canada, so neither Wartman nor the ERT officers were able to gas up. Then, we have Jerome Bro, a witness from the Onslow-Belmont Fire Hall incident, who, after seeing the shooting there, went to tell officers at a nearby checkpoint 
about what had happened and overheard on the police radio that the killer was driving a gray Mazda 3, after which the officers, officers all suddenly took off in the direction of Halifax. Finally, the video from the big stub does not show Constable Hubley exiting his vehicle and making any motions consistent with filling up a vehicle with gas. Instead, he and his partner quickly exit their vehicle and start shooting immediately, killing Wartman. This is consistent with what civilian witnesses have stated at, took place at the big stop, who also noted that the RCMP Suburban pulled up to the pump at high speed. These observations are also consistent with the video evidence. Ms. Mancini did not follow the CERT report in this regard, but instead, in fact, but instead did in fact show the images, images from both gas stations. She then described how Wartman then proceeded south on the Trans-Canada Highway to the Big Stop exit. There, he stopped at Pump 5. An ERT SUV, a different one than was at the Petro-Canada, stopped at the opposite side of the same pump. Constable Hubley, the driver, got out, immediately drew his weapon, and started shooting. Wartman had reached for a gun in an apparent attempt to kill himself before the officers could either do so or arrest him. He did shoot himself in the head, though Chief Medical Examiner Dr. Matthew Bowes testified that the shots from the officers likely killed him first. As I will discuss when I review the MCC itself, there were surveillance videos of these final moments, but it was not clear for a long time whether anyone would be permitted to watch them. Prior to the MCC, a few of the videos from the Big Stop had been published in Frank magazine, though in their presentation, the commission only showed still images. This is slightly misleading, as when you see the video, one is left with the impression that the officers parked and instantly exited the vehicle and started shooting, leaving no time for either observation or reflection. That same impression is not quite so clear when you only look at still images. Not included in the foundational document report were two items of potential interest. One was that Constable Brown had another, his third, near blue-on-blue -blue shooting when he saw a person near a checkpoint and radioed that he was going to take him down. The person was quickly identified to Constable Brown as a Halifax Regional Police Officer. The other omitted detail was two so far unidentified police officers driving in opposite directions on the big stop on-off ramp by the truck scales, the same ramp the killer took, just before the killer arrived. It is not clear what those officers may have been doing or what, if anything, they observed. Anyone watching Constable Hubley and Constable McLeod's testimony might naturally be caught up in the intense and at times emotional atmosphere in which the officers found themselves. Constable Hubley, a dog handler, was emotional in describing finding the McCulley family dog and the vindictiveness it would take to shoot a 20-pound animal that posed no threat. Both officers took their time recounting the final moments of the rampage. Certainly, having these particular officers testify when they did, prior to other officers from earlier parts of the narrative, just before the Easter long weekend, as well as the two-year anniversary of the killings, was a deliberate choice by the Commission. One might ask why these officers had been called to testify about their quick-thinking heroics, rather than having officers from the earlier portions of the narrative who had yet to testify. 
it seemed like the MCC was actively considering the potential public relations benefits to the RCMP in having this testimony being fresh in the mind of the public during Easter weekend family get-togethers and two-year memorial gatherings. Such considerations should not enter the minds of those directing a serious impartial inquiry. During the officer's testimony, the video from the big stop was still not shown. It was not even publicly acknowledged that there was video in existence and which covered the final confrontation from several angles. The MCC had not stated at the time whether the commissioners had made a particular decision about playing the video. The MCC had provided the video to the media, but under very unusual and strict conditions that it not only not be published, but also that it be destroyed after viewing. Requiring the deletion of the video was an onerous condition, and not playing it was very strange. It was the best possible evidence of what happened, and it was available. I believe not playing it was a PR decision so that every newscast would not be leading with the video. If they were holding it back as part of their trauma-informed mandate, they should have at least explained why they thought that was the right call. It was absurd that the best possible evidence of such a key moment was not being used, yet this was where we stood. Fortunately, David Hutt, a media lawyer acting for Frank Magazine, made an application to the MCC to have standing to argue for the video to be disclosed. Given the comments in the MCC's interim report about the lawyers for the commission having robes, roles equivalent or at least similar to those of Crown prosecutors, that is to say they are obligated to seek justice and not victories or convictions, we should have been able to expect that these lawyers would support Frank Magazine's application. They did not. They did not. The only possible reason for opposing the disclosure of these videos was that it might undermine the heroic narrative that had been presented, and that should, and that should not be a consideration of the Commission. If the MCC feels the video was too traumatic to show publicly, that should still not have prevented them from disclosing it to the parties. The stated reason for the two officers to be present at the big stop was to get gas. Constable Hubley stated in his evidence that he thought the situation might go on for a while yet, and so he thought he should fill up his gas tank. Somewhat curiously, he said the tank was below half, which hardly makes filling up seem like an urgent need, particularly since they were presuming at that point that the killer was very close by and was active. Constable Hubley did also say he was thinking ahead to the potential that he may have to follow the killer's trail into Halifax. Regardless of whether the lead-in to the shooting of Wartman has been accurately described, the seconds where the two officers exited their vehicles and shot 23 rounds at the killer made for intense listening. Constables Hubley and McLeod described the moments in such a way that you get something of a first-person perspective. Constable Hubley described experiencing a sensory exclusion in those moments after the shooting, which would seem to be the result of deep and intense focus for those in those moments. They kept shooting until Wartman stopped moving, as per their training. Constable Hubley noted that they had a concern that he may have been wearing hard body armor, as he had been known to have RCMP gear. They pulled back for cover after they shot, and the rest of the ERT squad moved in with support. 
It was all very compelling and demonstrated quick thinking under pressure by two officers who, it should be noted, were operating completely outside the command structure of the RCMP. Constable Hubley was a dog handler and so has operational autonomy. I am sure that will be raised as a notable fact when it comes to reviewing the command decisions. Some other notable points that emerged from the testimony included the fact that Constable McLeod was a medic who attended on Lisa Banfield when she emerged from the woods in the morning of April 19, 2020. He said she was disheveled, but made no mention of significant injuries to Miss Banfield. In addition, Miss Banfield had told Constable McLeod that she thought Wartman was going to kill her, then go to Dartmouth to kill her sister, then to Moncton to kill his parents. That makes some sense, given the enmity that we have learned Wartman had for his family going back many years. It may be that he was searching through Portapique for Miss Banfield, gave up the search when he understood police might be on the scene, and then moved on to try to get to Dartmouth and Moncton. The rest of his killings would, under that theory, have served the purpose of occupying the police while he tried to reach those family members. Notably, this theory would not seem to explain the McLeod-Jenkins killings. Following Frank Magazine's application and a negotiated resolution, the surveillance videos of the final moments of the killer's life are now posted on the MCC website. I suspect most adults will not find them particularly disturbing to watch. There is nothing gruesome or graphic about what is visible. The most you see is car windows being shattered by bullets. The Pump 6 video shows actions consistent with Constable Hubley's witness account. He pulled ahead at the gas pump more than you would probably do if you were planning to get the jump on the person at the adjacent vehicle. As he got out of his vehicle on the driver's side, he took a moment to look back inside his own vehicle as he reached for his gun, then waited another moment before shooting. It has the appearance of a focused athletic movement. On the Pump 5 video, just before the officers open fire, you can see where Wartman gets a shot away at himself. The car shakes just before the officers open fire, and the movement of the car seems to be more than you would expect from somebody simply shifting their weight in the driver's seat. There are still questions about the approach to the pump. The officers testified that they looked for the first available pump and just happened to get lined up with Wartman. Reports have stated, and the video supports, that other pumps were available before the pump adjacent to that which Wartman was using. The video shows the officers going straight to pump 6 without slowing down to look elsewhere. The simple fact that the videos were withheld continues to foster suspicion. The actual written decision on the videos also has some curious elements. For example, the commissioners state that the videos were always available for public viewing at the commission offices if anyone from the public had wished to view them. I had not seen any reference to the commissioners having indicated this availability before that. Substantively, the commissioners noted that they had to balance the importance of the best evidence being provided against the risk that showing the videos would sensationalize the killing or perhaps re-traumatize those involved. In the decision, they said that now that commission lawyers had recommended the release, and no other objections remained outstanding, they, consider, they reconsidered their initial balancing decision. They said there was going to be a new process in the future for any instance where evidence is made in exhibit but not yet published. In such cases, commission lawyers would need to publicly state why they have withheld the exhibit from the public. 
that process was never utilized. It appears that the police knew they had Wartman spotted at the Petro-Canada in Elmsdale, then tracked him to the big stop intending to stop him there one way or another. The officers in the Suburban exited their vehicle ready for action, and knowing that what kind of threat they were confronting, they fired at the first sign of a sudden movement from inside the car. That still seems like a justifiable shooting on the part of the RCMP officers, and so it is all the more curious that the RCMP account does not match the available evidence. That suggests there is still something they are trying to conceal from the public. Consider the question that is not asked if you accept the RCMP explanation. Nobody is asking, why not stay at a distance, set up some kind of a perimeter, and try to keep take him alive? If the story is that they just coincidentally happened to pull up to the adjacent pump and then were effectively forced to spring into action. One might imagine some reasonable explanations for not wanting to risk setting up something like that in such a public and potentially fluid situation. You would need to know in advance exactly where he was and clear an area around him somehow before he took off or worse, killed more innocent people. A mass shooter who clearly intended to keep killing was stopped with no further loss of life at a very public location. From that perspective, things could be said to have worked out very well at the big stop. The question remains, however, whether any planning took place in the four or five minutes Wartman took to get from the Petro Canada to the big stop, and whether those plans or instructions included orders to kill on site rather than risk trying anything else. What we seem to have is an organized effort made to craft a story that does not seem to need crafting. That in itself lends credibility to the doubtful. The Mass Casualty Commission should have delved into these details so that we could learn why the police have chosen to conceal or obfuscate some of the mass shooting's final moments. Even once the police had killed Wartman, they still displayed a willingness to mislead the public. They tweeted out that they had him in custody and seemed to have photographed him wearing handcuffs with his hands behind his back, even though there was absolutely no question that he was dead. Post-takedown misinformation. One of the themes of the Mass Casualty Commission, one of the themes the Mass Casualty Commission has highlighted was the tendency of the RCMP to hand out very little information and to treat the public like they do not need to know very much. The stream of false and misleading information emerged from the RCMP, which seemingly instinctively began as soon as Wartman was killed, continued during press conferences held over the following days. During the MCC, we learned that there were many discussions taking place in the background and many political machinations underway as the various white shirt commanding officers sought to favorably position themselves for the scrutiny that was sure to come. Even though senior RCMP officers knew at the time of their first press conference the day after the shooting spree began that the gunman had killed at least 17 people, Chief Superintendent Leather and Leah Scanlon deliberately decided to use the number 10 instead. The following day, Chief Superintendent Leather, despite being aware one of the victims was a teenager, told reporters the victims were all adults. While the local RCMP leadership team was doing its best to obfuscate and confuse, 
RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky granted interviews to media outlets telling them the actual numbers she had learned from on-the-ground officers in Nova Scotia. Ms. Scanlon was not happy that Commissioner Lucky was doing interviews. Soon after media outlets began reporting the actual numbers, she fired off a frustrated email to members of the RCMP's national communications team asking that we stop changing numbers on victims. She wanted the Nova Scotia team to lead the release of information. She said that the release of 10 was decided upon for good reason. We knew at the time of the press event that it was more than 10, but that is what we came to ground on for the event. To be clear, the good reason was for her team's convenience. It had nothing to do with the facts or the public interest in them. I've had to ask my entire team to turn their phones off, she complained, after reporters began pressing for the latest actual known death count. Over the next week, Ms. Scanlon, Assistant Commissioner Bergerman, and the rest of the Nova Scotia RCMP continued to do their best to say not to say anything about anything, including refusing to answer reporters' questions about the weapons the killer used. Commissioner Lucky has become the subject of heavy criticism following the revelation that she tried to compel senior Nova Scotia-based RCMP officers into releasing the makes and models of the firearms used by Wartman. She is alleged to have done so at the direction of Prime Minister Trudeau and public, Federal Public Safety Minister Bill Blair. I think many people had things wrong when it came to Commissioner Lucky. As someone with a Generation X mentality, I'm not surprised in the least that these sorts of political discussions would take place in the immediate aftermath of a major event, even, or perhaps especially, a tragic event. Indeed, it would be shocking if no such discussions took place among the political entities involved. Gun control has been deployed as a wedge issue by federal liberals for fundraising and vote-getting purposes for at least the past several federal elections. At times, a tragic event can be a powerful force for change, but where it does, the change has to, be, has to emerge naturally from the event. Here, the political decision-makers, Minister Blair and Prime Minister Trudeau, misread the situation and gave poor direction. They should own their political decisions and answer for having given those directions. The proposed legislation banning certain firearms was their initiative. They were the ones who felt they could raise this wedge issue to their advantage, so now that it has gone poorly, it is them who should bear the brunt of the impact. The elevated opportunity for change flowing from an event is also the risk. If you misread the situation, what you, can, what you do can look crass, as it did here. At least Commissioner Lucky was on the side of disclosure as opposed to concealment. This has proven to be a rare instinct within the RCMP. The main issue, or at least one of them, during the MCC with respect to the RCMP performance has been their institutional instinct to secrecy. Everyone else involved in the discussions about what information should be made public seemed to want to keep the information on the killer's firearms secret. The explanation given for keeping information secret was the need to not jeopardize an ongoing investigation. This explanation may seem sensible at first glance, but does not stand up to any real scrutiny in this case. Was there a real investigation ongoing? Perhaps there was, but... Two years later, nobody has been charged with cross-border weapon smuggling, so whatever goal the RCMP had in mind when they decided to keep yet another secret has not appeared to have panned out. 
The RCMP has been facing heavy criticism about their performance during the events of the mass casualty, and perhaps more so for their inability to communicate with anyone after the fact. The release of notes from Superintendent Darren Campbell, which have generated this controversy around Commissioner Lucky, appears to have been an attempt by someone to offer Commissioner Lucky as something of a sacrifice in the hopes of preserving the RCMP brand. That would be both insufficient and personally unfair to the Commissioner. The evidence emerging so far from the MCC suggests that the hierarchical structure of the RCMP, coupled with their institutional mistrust of us as citizens, are what made this tragedy so much worse than it might have been. When it comes to her actions, my sense was that the initial stories had the wrong target. There appears to have been an orchestrated plan to undermine her leadership as a roundabout way to maintain the viability of the RCMP as a contract policing agency in Nova Scotia. During a press conference on April, 8, April 28, 2020, the same day as the conference call, Superintendent Campbell repeatedly deflected questions concerning specifics about the weapons the killer had in his possession. That information, he told one reporter, is part of the active and ongoing investigation, and it's a piece that right now, unfortunately, I can't share with you. In the United States, where mass shootings are common, identifying weapons used by shooters is usually one of the first pieces of information we learn. The name of the gunman has been broadcast, had been broadcast nationally and internationally after the RCMP itself tweeted his identity well before the first press conference. According to Superintendent, Superintendent Campbell's notes, Commissioner Lucky believed the Nova Scotia RCMP had disobeyed her instructions to make public specific information on the firearms used by the killer and had made her anger plain to all those on the call. Ms. Scanlon not only backed up Superintendent Campbell's version of before the Parliamentary Committee, but she also wrote her own letter to the Commissioner, calling Commissioner Lucky's behavior during the meeting appalling, inappropriate, unprofessional, and extremely belittling. Notably, this letter was written a full year after the conference call it was describing, during a time when Ms. Scanlon appears to have been going through some mental health difficulties. Although Commissioner Lucky herself conceded to the investigating parliamentary committee her frustrations with the Nova Scotia RCMP leadership, she insisted that she did not interfere in the investigation, nor did she herself experience political interference. Specifically, she says she was not directed to publicly release information about weapons used by the perpetrator to help advance pending gun control legislation. The Liberal government was days away from introducing new gun control legislation intending to ban 1,500 models of assault-style firearms, they moved up an announcement on the legislation following the Nova Scotia shootings. It would seem to make sense for the government to ask the RCMP commissioner which weapons were used by the shooter in what was being described as the worst mass shooting in Canadian history. If those weapons were among those being banned by the government, it bolstered the argument for the new legislation. Using facts to bolster a public policy argument is hardly improper. The conference call happened 10 days after the shootings. The RCMP was already facing public scrutiny over their abysmal communications failures in the first days following the tragedy. During the April 28, 2020 conference call among senior RCMP officers, Commissioner Lucky expressed disappointment in the, brief, in the press briefings carried out by the Nova Scotia RCMP. The call participants included Commissioner Lucky, Deputy Commissioner Brian Brennan, 
Chief Superintendent Leather, Superintendent Campbell, Assistant Commissioner Bergerman, and Ms. Scanlon. One of the Nova Scotia Mass Casualty Commission's foundational documents detail what transpired during the meeting and quotes from Superintendent Campbell's handwritten notes about his version of what went down. The fact that the Justice Department did not provide the Mass Casualty Commission with Superintendent Campbell's notes, which essentially accused the Commissioner of pressuring her underlings to publicly disclose compromising information about the killer's weapons, until two and a half months after other requested documents naturally raised legitimate alarms for those following the proceedings. As well, the MCC was told that there had been a recording made of the call by a communications official on the Ottawa end, but, suspiciously, that this recording was deleted and could not be recovered. Superintendent Campbell claimed Commissioner Lucky told the Nova Scotia RCMP leadership that she had promised Minister Blair and the Prime Minister's office that the RCMP would release information about the weapons used in the killing. When Superintendent Campbell argued that publicizing such information could jeopardize the still ongoing investigation by the RCMP and United States law enforcement, he says Commissioner Lucky told him the Nova Scotia RCMP didn't understand that this was tied to pending gun control legislation that would make officers and, public and the public safer by or through this legislation. Despite requests that she not share information about the weapons, Commissioner Lucky did inform Minister Blair's office. The information came, however, with a stern caveat. Please do not disseminate further. Do not share this information past the Minister and the PM as it is directly related to this active investigation. The resulting evidence was that despite their apparent eagerness to include details about the weapons as part of the announcement of the bans, neither Minister Blair nor the Prime Minister made the information public. We did not learn what weapons were involved in the shooting until seven months later when the National Post used access to information laws to obtain a copy of the briefing report prepared for Prime Minister Trudeau. So, while the government may legitimately have wanted to use information about the weapons as part of the rollout of new legislation, it did not. The political machinations around this call and the debate, the debate over the release of the makes and models of the weapons used were seen by most people who were paying close attention to the MCC as a distraction from the main issues at stake. While the controversy engaged the national media for a few days, it is unlikely to form any significant part of the MCC final report or to occupy a significant portion of the memories Nova Scotians take from either the events or the inquiry. What it did show was what a viper's nest type atmosphere seems to exist at the upper echelons of the RCMP. Each of the senior officers who testified had clearly made a plan to undermine their colleagues in an attempt to bolster their own standing and reputation. It was after watching these senior officers testify that I concluded that no major conspiracy or secret could be concealed among this group as someone would inevitably reveal it whenever they saw an opportunity to use it for career advancement or protection. Manipulating, then overprotecting Lisa Banfield. While the RCMP leadership was obfuscating and misleading the public through their public communications, their investigators were questioning Lisa Banfield. 
through a series of interviews that displayed either extreme carelessness or else a calculated attempt to mislead Miss Banfield, the RCMP gave her and her legal team the leverage they may have needed or wanted in order to avoid the scrutiny that the MCC was capable of providing. In doing so, they deprived the public of potential answers to important questions that only Miss Banfield could provide. I took some time to review the statements that Ms. Banfield provided to the RCMP. Ms. Banfield spoke with Constable Terry Brown the morning of April 19, 2020, 37 pages, with Staff Sergeant Greg Vardy on April 20, 2020, 54 pages, with Staff Sergeant Vardy on April 21, 2020, 19-page summary, and Staff Sergeant Vardy again on April 28, 2020, 124 pages. Ms. Banfield gave long answers to questions about what happened to her the night of April 18th, 2020, the time leading up to that weekend, and her relationship with Wartman. She gave details on guns that her spouse purchased, his efforts to create a mock RCMP cruiser, and his infidelities. Two curious things emerged from my reading of Ms. Banfield's statements. First, while she spoke at length about many things, she seemed to have very little curiosity or concern about the people who her spouse killed. She mentions at one point that had she not hid, perhaps he would have just taken her to Dartmouth and burned their other home rather than going after anyone else. In fact, if you took someone who did not know anything about the mass shootings, had them read Miss Banfield's four statements, and then asked them to guess what Miss Banfield's spouse was charged with doing, their answer likely would be twofold. Unlawful confinement of Miss Banfield in the back of the police car until she escaped, and arson. It is far from clear after reading her statements that 22 people were killed. There is no real sense that the magnitude of the events had sunk in with her in any meaningful way in those first 10 days. She was giving long answers about people in the Portapec community who she mostly avoided and did not seem to like or trust. The second thing I noticed may explain why Miss Banfield has not faced any serious criminal consequences and seems not to have been investigated with potential criminal involvement in mind. Early on, after the shootings, there was some question as to whether Wartman had any help obtaining firearms or planning his killing spree. Superintendent Campbell's notes, which sparked a national political controversy when they were released, referred to the risk of jeopardizing an ongoing investigation. One might naturally expect that those closest to Wartman would be treated with some suspicion in that regard, including his spouse. When police questioned a suspect, they start off by advising them of their rights under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which gives citizens the right to not answer questions and to have legal advice before speaking to police. I have watched many such police interviews over the years, and the charter warning is typically done slowly and deliberately, and parts are often repeated to ensure the person understands correctly. By the end of the charter warning, it should be obvious to any suspect that they have little to gain by speaking to the police and should really be speaking with a lawyer. Despite being a potential suspect, Ms. Banfield was not provided with a charter warning at the beginning of any of the four interviews. This would suggest that the police were viewing her from the very beginning as a victim witness and not a suspect in any way. This may have been a mistake on their part a mistake which Staff Sergeant Vardy appears to try to correct in the very late stage, stages of the fourth interview. At pages 96 to 98 of the April 28, 2020 interview, Staff Sergeant Vardy gives a paraphrased version of a charter warning to Miss Banfield 
after she explained what she knew about how Wartman illegally imported guns from the United States. That the warning was at such a late stage of the interview, and with it being paraphrased rather than given verbatim, would likely have led to anything Miss Banfield said in the four interviews not being able to be used against her in a criminal context. After he gave her the paraphrased charter warning, Miss Banfield reasonably asked whether she should have a lawyer, which at page 97, line 3026, to which Staff Sergeant Vardy replied, No, I'm saying to you that this is, those are your rights. The word charter is never uttered. Amazingly, Staff Sergeant Vardy then tells her that if she knowingly transported guns with Wartman in any of their trips across the Canada-U.S. border, that she could be charged. As you read the questions and answers, it is clear that he was effectively telling her how to answer his next series of questions. He telegraphed to her that she should deny any knowledge of the guns and only admit to overhearing possible references to guns being purchased and hidden in Wartman's F-150. All of this would have created a major problem for any criminal prosecution of Miss Banfield, which would have reflected poorly on the initial RCMP response and their interviews with her. Perhaps this helps explain why, instead, the RCMP adopted her version of events at face value and why the Nova Scotia Public Prosecution Service agreed to refer her charges to restorative justice. Many questions have arisen regarding Miss Banfield's account of the night of April 18th particularly given her la apparent lack of injuries that would support an account of being attacked or after effects consistent with a barefoot, lightly clothed person spending a night in the woods at zero degree temperatures. In addition to addressing these, those questions, one would expect Ms. Banfield to be able to provide significant background details on Wartman that might help explain what caused him to go over the edge as he did. Then... In December 2020, something unexpected happened, which created some doubt as to whether Ms. Banfield would even testify at the MCC. Along with her brother and brother-in-law, Ms. Banfield was charged under Section 101 of the Criminal Code with providing ammunition to Wartman. She pled not guilty, and a five-day judge-alone trial was scheduled for late March and early April of 2022. On the broad spectrum of criminal allegations, it was a very minor charge. The police had stated publicly that they do not believe Miss Banfield had prior knowledge of Wartman's intent to go on a killing rampage, and so even if she were to be convicted, it seems unlikely that she would face jail time. She would be like someone under the old drug laws who brought some marijuana to a friend's house after being, being charged for trafficking drugs. Technically, transporting and even sharing drugs could be considered trafficking, but in reality, nobody was ever charged on that basis. Miss Banfield being charged at all, especially if we accept that she has been a longtime victim, struck me as being in that territory. Given her status, it told me there was likely something else going on. There had been speculation that this charge may have meant that Miss Banfield would not testify at the MCC for fear that she would have to talk about her own role in assisting Wartman acquiring ammunition and potentially other items, or at least her knowledge of his acquisitions and thus might prejudice her criminal trial. Further speculation, given the relatively minor nature of the standalone charge, suggested that Ms. Banfield was charged with this crime for the express purpose of keeping her from testifying at the MCC. That speculation would say that she had has a connection 
of some sort with the RCMP or that the RCMP knows she has things to say that they wish to keep concealed and so laid this charge in order to keep her quiet. She hired James Lockyer, a Toronto-based criminal lawyer who would be well-known among lawyers, if not perhaps the general public. That was an interesting decision and seemed to show perhaps an unusually sophisticated knowledge of the legal marketplace. She had a Dartmouth-based lawyer, Peter Rumscheid, for her civil claim against Wartman's estate, but chose to go to a different firm and province to deal with this relatively minor criminal charge. That alone suggests that this has a high level of complexity, as did the length, as did the length of the trial. None of that should have mattered when it came to the question of Ms. Banfield testifying. The question has been settled since the 1995 Supreme Court of Canada decision Phillips v. Nova Scotia, Commission of Inquiry into the Westray Mine Tragedy, dealing with this very issue. In the Westray case, two mine managers had been charged with manslaughter and criminal negligence causing death. They applied to have the Westray inquiry declared invalid or else to have the court grant an injunction preventing it from, being, from starting hearings until after the criminal trials had concluded. The Supreme Court of Canada rejected that position, stating that the importance of public inquiries requires that all persons with rele relevant evidence to be given will be subject to subpoena and compellable to testify as witnesses. There were two kinds of protections in place for Ms. Banfield. First, nothing she said at the MCC or any derivative evidence, that is, evidence that would not have been discovered otherwise, could be used against her in the criminal trial. Secondly, if there was a concern that the publicity of her testimony would taint a jury pool, limited publication bans or in-camera testimony can be used for her MCC testimony. That second protection, however, is only relevant for those accused who are facing a jury, not for judge-alone trials, as Ms. Banfield had selected. The Supreme Court said that judges will be presumed not to be affected by any publicity associated with an accused. Given what the Supreme Court has said about judge-alone trials, there was also no reason for delaying her testimony until after her trial took place, though I suspect her lawyers were pushing for that. They had already made allusions to the potential for an unfair trial in relation to earlier information being unredacted from search warrant documents. So, Ms. Banfield was always a compellable witness at the MCC. Her testimony, which I will review in the section below on the MCC itself, provided very little insight and reflected the undue leverage that was needlessly handed to her by both the RCMP and MCC. Okay, well, that's, uh, that's it for part two of uh, Deficits of Trust, What Really Happened. Uh, those sections can all be read together. I'll put them in a, uh, a playlist on uh, YouTube. I hope everybody enjoys that, and uh, I'll be back to start part three, Traumatically Misinformed, the Nova Scotia Mass Casualty Commission, in the next video. So we'll look forward to uh, seeing you then. Uh, until then, thanks for watching, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.